been in the nonprofit sector for just about 20 years now. And one of the things that's become abundantly clear, and in fact, it was clear right from the start, that as a sector dedicated to doing good, we can also do and often do a lot of harm. And a lot of that harm stems from big systemic issues like white supremacy and racism and colonialism and capitalism. And these are big topics. And sometimes it feels overwhelming, especially if you are like me and hold uh, positions, multiple positions of power in your identity and in your experiences. And so it's tough. It's tough to move the needle. It's tough to be honest and open with ourselves. And it's really difficult for everyone to be vulnerable. But that's what I'm hoping we're going to wade into today. Uh, we're going to be talking about all these things, how we can get vulnerable with ourselves and start to question and change um, the work that we do or the harm that we inevitably will do uh, at some point in our lives. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and you're listening to the Small Nonprofit Podcast, where we bring you practical down-to-earth advice on how to get more done for your small organization. You are going to change the world, and we're here to help. I am so excited to welcome today's guest, Martha Awajabi, to the podcast, First and foremost, Martha loves talking about white supremacy, which uh, I love because so few people really um, admit that, <laughs> I would say, but it's really become part of her, her world and her work, um, having been in the sector for many years, uh, but most recently starting as the CEO of JMB Consulting. And she's the curator of the BAME Online Conference or hashtag BAME Online. Um, and we are going to dive right in. So Martha, welcome to the podcast. Oh, and I should say, Martha is joining us from a WeWork space um, just due to some unforeseen circumstances. So please excuse any background noise. Martha, hello. Hi, I'm so sorry. I got kicked out of the meeting room that I had like snuck into to have some quiet but I'm hoping that everybody here notices that what I'm saying is very important so they're all keeping quiet in the background everyone quiet (laughs) exactly exactly Um, yeah thank you so much for having me thank you so much it's great I mean I'm British I don't know if everybody knows this so it's really amazing to you know be able to connect with people across the world who really care about this kind of stuff Um, we feel very insulated on the British islands uh, so yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now you sort of, I don't want to say fell into this work. You've been working in the nonprofit sector for a long time, but really started to get a focus on, uh, BAME in over the last uh, few years. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about that transition for you? And also, cause we don't call it BAME in, in North America, um, there's actually lots of different words, Jedi, EDI, uh, et cetera. I, so just clarify what that means and how you, how you started wading into this space. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, to be honest, I don't even use the term BAME. BAME is the British like government's term for non-white people, people of colour. Um, it stands for Black, Asian and minority ethnic, multi-ethnic, minoritized ethnic, whatever. It's super problematic. Um, but what I started my conference two, three years ago, God, that feels like ages ago. Uh, no, it was two years ago. Um, it was called the BAME fundraising conference because that was the terminology that everyone was using, kind of following... Um, COVID happening and the disparities in healthcare for kind of black and Asian people, black and brown people. Um, so I was a fundraiser for a long time. So I worked in philanthropy for 10 years, um, which was interesting um, and difficult at, at points or all the time. And I learned quite quickly that, you know, disparity sector had a problem with race. Um, so I worked for large organizations, small organizations, but in the background, I've always had a really strong sense of injustice. Um, I've been very reluctant to call myself an activist. Um, often people call me an activist and that is fine. Um, but I, yeah, ever since I was a child, I was campaigning around gender equality. I'm queer, so lots of stuff around queer liberation. And then in 2019, I went on a date with a girl who really wanted to impress me. So she took me to a Charity So White event, right? And Charity So White is a British uh, group of uh, people who work in the charity sector who want our sector to take the lead on dismantling racism. So I'm not no longer part of it now because I wanted to focus on BAME Online, but um, you know, we did incredible work like really getting the sector to, to even admit that racism was an issue, you know, that was hard, right? Um, and then due to a series of unfortunate events, like I was doing all this work for charity, so white kind of people were hearing more about the way I talk and the way I bring people on in conversations about white supremacy. Um, and then unfortunate personal circumstances where COVID happened, I was a fundraiser and I just got a job at a theatre. Um, so <laughs> they were like, yeah, so we're not going to open for like a long time. So I couldn't start there. And I thought I'd start a fundraising consultancy. But my first job was to curate online fundraising conference which at that point was owned by fundraising everywhere they've now handed over the intellectual property to me knowing that as a person of color i was best placed to like really kind of take on uh this conference and the fundraising conference is looking at power dynamics and you know the experience of minoritized uh, fundraisers but also really kind of reckoning with the imperial colonial history of philanthropy in particular like where did all this money come from um, it didn't come out of nowhere. It's not because these people are particularly enlightened. It's because there is a dark history of wealth accumulation, of theft, of knowledge, of resource, of slavery um, that has really kind of built the, the riches that we see in all too often in philanthropy. Um, so long-winded story of how I ended up here, totally by accident, but also it was like I was made for it. Um, so, yeah. Um, and now I, yeah, dedicate my time to doing anti-racist work particularly in the charity sector but looking at higher education as well I'm really interested in how knowledge and like the whiteness of knowledge production um that kind of the way knowledge is gatekeeped at the academic level has an impact on how we understand the charity sector right oh my god uh, I love that I know like, <laughs> I know I'm very cool <laughs> you are really cool I know I'm like this is amazing and I I so relate to that sort of like activism in your blood you know I've been doing this work long before I started in the charitable sector as well and it's like how how can we not how like how 
this is just what has to happen. So on that note, like, let's talk a little bit about what has to happen. One of the things that I hear come up and actually I just had this conversation with, um, an indigenous woman who's fundraising for an indigenous, indigenous led indigenous serving organization here in Canada. And she was really struggling to connect with a lot of their prospective donors, just feeling really, um, almost like on opposite sides of, of this divide. Um, and it can be, I mean, I've worked with social justice organizations my whole career. There's this feeling that like, when it comes to philanthropy, like in some ways, all money is, is bad money, right? Most of wealth, uh, especially like large accumulation of wealth is on the backs of other people. It is absolutely colonial capitalist and um, white supremacist. So how do we square that away with our work and our need need for fundraising. I mean, I actually also think that fundraising is probably better for organizations than things like government funding because governments are also colonial and capitalistic. So how do we, how do we square that away with like, we work in a system that operates on money um, and money comes from places that have caused a lot of harm. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think it's, it's a really important one for the charity sector and for fundraisers. I mean, the level of kind of naivety and cognitive dissonance I see happening in the charity sector, where I'm like, we really do need to grow up a little bit. Like, it's as though our lives exist in a vacuum. Like, you come and you do this job and you don't ever interrogate, like, why you're doing it, like, the history of your organisation. And for me, like, history is so, so, so important. And because it's particularly in the UK, like we have, like, we are like, history is like our distant relative. Like we are estranged from history, right? Like this is like the, the relative that we don't invite to the parties because then they will start talking about each family member and being like, well, you did this thing, right? Um, and actually, you know, I think it's been, you know, you kind of, you mentioned the government and it's been in a concerted effort, I think, in the way that, um, education has been set up that we are divorced from our colonial history and you know um we often kind of look to the states for a lot of help around anti-racism because they've been reckoning with the, the legacy of racism for, for forever because they did their slavery on their own shores right we did our slavery in the caribbean so we can pretend it never really happened right it's really funny people are like wait britain was involved in the slave trade i'm like wow it's 2022 and you don't know that which shows yeah. that there's a fundamental well, and I'm in Canada, right? We have a similar experience where we're like, oh, it's our neighbors to the South, you know? And yeah. actually like, there's obviously deep, deep, or we like, like to think of um, the Underground Railroad as like our mm -hmm. work in, in at that time. But no, like, obviously we also were very involved in the slave trade, but it, we focus on other other parts of the history. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always someone else who did it. It's like, yeah. well, by that logic, like nobody did any racism. Racism just happens to people of color. Like, come on, let's grow up a little bit. Um, and in 2020, when, you know, we had the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, which was incredible in many ways and difficult in, in many other ways, right? And in the UK, something quite incredible happened um, where a bunch of young people uh, in Bristol toppled a statue of a colonialist called Edward Colston, right? It was like all over the place. Everyone's like, oh, we did it. Um, obviously that didn't end racism, but I think it's really 
interesting the example of it didn't end racism what <laughs> no it didn't end racism with anything like racism seems to have got worse I was, um, yeah <laughs> right like the doubling down like you know yeah. and actually they all kind of got acquitted but now they're kind of re-reviewing that case um so so we can take Edward Colston as a really good example of the charity sector and the tension between like doing good and doing bad um so on Wikipedia which is a brilliant way to do your research, but just, just bear with me. On, on Wikipedia, um, they describe Edward Colson using these words. They say he's an English merchant, he was a slave trader and a philanthropist and a Tory member of parliament. How can you put slave trader and philanthropist side by side, right? And I think actually the fact that we're not able to reconcile with the fact that these two things can be true at once like makes it really difficult for ourselves to one, see ourselves as part of the problem, but also, you know, again, it becomes like kind of like blame game, like, oh, you know, how could this person be a philanthropist and a slave trader at the same time? How can, you know, this person who has been alleged for sexual misconduct also be doing such amazing work, you know? And I think there, there is so much of the nature of white supremacy is that either or thinking, you know? Like, if this is true, then this can't be true. If this person is a good person and like, you know, then they can't have committed committed harm. And just like that one example, like really shows like the contradictions of the charity sector, right? Yeah. And actually, if you look kind of, you know, at the, and the and it's so funny because, you know, the history of like, you know, America, Canada is British history. And we kind of forget that actually like, it was us that came. <laughs> and so like, you know, these, these same ideologies, you know, they, they have been exported from, from Britain more often than not. Um, and Edward Colston was um, a member of the Royal African Company, right? Which held a monopoly in England on the trading of um, uh, products from West Africa, gold, silver, ivory, and enslaved people, right? Um, and what I find really interesting is in, you know, and this is all kind of like the 16, end of the 1600s, is that in order for these colonial companies to form, they had to be doing some kind of public good. Like that was a requirement by Elizabethan law. So you can kind of see like these like, interest, mm. you know, you see Lloyd's Bank has Lloyd's Foundation. They've been kind of reckoning with their kind of colonial past as well and ensuring slave ship. So the very history and the very DNA of the charity sector is that kind of actually <laughs> having that ideology of white supremacy and capitalism, but at the same time doing good for some people. Mm -hmm. But actually that very doing good is in order to continue doing bad. And yeah. <laughs> actually like that's really difficult for people to, to grapple with. And, you know, lots of people come into the sector thinking, you know, I'm going to do good work. I want to, you know, I, I, I want to support people who are less fortunate, you know, and that's already kind of, tied up in white saviorism and ideologies about who needs help, who isn't able to help themselves, who is the savior, who has the best ideas about how society should be run. And let me tell you, it is not the Brits. <laughs> it, is not, it is not us. Um, so, so these contradictions have always been there. Now it's come out into the mainstream a little bit more. Mm. Um, I don't even know what your original question is. I just started like banging on. Yeah, about yeah, this no, thing. it's great. <laughs> and like, my instinct is to um, is to ask like, well, how do we fix it? But I think that that's the wrong question because I don't actually think there's a good answer. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, we always want to just jump to 
they're like, okay, what's the solution? But there's not a great solution right now, right? This is the hard part. We're waiting in territory that is murky and unclear. And so instead I wanna ask like, what are some of the ways we can start to just even sit with the discomfort of that juxtaposition and like acknowledge it? And, you know, I think that to me is the starting point, but what's the starting point for you? No, I'm, I'm with you. And, and that's a really brilliant question. And more often than not, like what I hear from, you know, leaders who are like, oh, oh my gosh, the charity sector is racist. Oh, my organization might be racist. They jump to fixing before they even understand what the problem is, right? And like at no point would you ever in any other area of work not investigate what isn't working before you start trying to come up with solutions. And that's why you kind of like really see that like, people don't understand what racism is. They don't understand what white supremacy is. Like they can't even sometimes say the word white supremacy. Like in the UK, like getting people to say white supremacy is like you've like, you know, said that they have to give a, here too, here too. Let me be clear. So I don't know if you saw in the news like this past spring in Canada, we had um, this sort of occupation of our uh, country's capital, Ottawa, uh, by truckers. And like that there were strong ties to white supremacy in that specific movement. And so when we say things like white supremacy, we sort of think of those kinds of things and we don't think about ourselves and what we've inherited around white supremacy. And so, you know, it's very othering. When we use those terms, it's very much those people over there, not me. So it's true here. Yeah, yeah. And, and I see that so often happen that like, you know, people are happy to acknowledge that racism exists, but it's always someone else doing it as though it just happens to people of color. Like, again, that's victim blaming. Like, it's not like I'm just out here, like, with racism happening to me. You know? <laughs> there has to be a thought, there has to be a perpetrator. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the, the, the lack of learning and the lack of willingness to learn, that lack of like willingness to see yourself as part of the problem and to understand the white supremacist within, it, it, it's kind of part, part of the, the the nature of racism and white supremacy, right? To make it so ugly and so terrifying that like people don't want to engage with it, right? If I say, oh, white supremacist culture happens here, like everyone thinks I've called them all like participating members of the KKK. And I just like, you know, all I'm saying is that your entire leadership team is white. I'm not saying you're all KKK members, you know, but but for me, like there is there is a, a a fear and refusal to engage in like what it takes to decolonize, right? And mm. you know, I'm British, like I don't even know if I know what it takes to decolonize because I live in the most colonial place, like of all time, right? Um, but I always go back to a Hawaiian activist called Poka Lanewi, who talks about the process of decolonization that takes um five stages, right? Um, and the final stage is action, and this is where everybody's trying to go before they've done one, two, three, or four. Um, and they say that the first stage is re re recovery and rediscovery. This is all about learning and unlearning, right? And discovering the ugly truth of colonization, like really the violent, disturbing aspects of white supremacy is when you'll start to recognize it in yourself, right? Mm. Um, and really dedicating yourself to learning those disturbing parts. So I'm from London um, and I've recently moved to Manchester, right? Manchester used to be called Cottonopolis because of the cotton uh, industry, right? That was directly um, linked to 
slavery in the Caribbean, right? And in America, right? Um, and actually like how many people actually really are reckoning with that, that history? Or how many people are excited or interested or curious to understand like how the conditions that we live in today were created? I think more often than not, if we start to understand that, then we know that we can't continue to live that way. So a lot of it is like, you know, people wanting to maintain status quo because they know that if they if they learn, if enough people learn, the things that have to change. So you've got that learning. Then you have mourning, which everyone abhors, um, and this is like a social process that we're all supposed to do together. And I think in the charity sector, particularly, you know, we say to people that they need to access their emotions, like unless their emotions are being nice, which is not an emotion, uh, <laughs> then they can't really do it, you know? And there's mm. grief involved, there's anger involved in this, there's like deep, deep, deep sadness. And it's not just for people of color, like white people have to dehumanize themselves in order to participate in the system of racism, right? And like that comes with like, a, a, like it's like Horcruxes, you know, like Harry Potter style, like <laughs> really, um, splitting yourself apart and we have to mourn that we have to mourn that together and more often than not people want to just engage in reading lists they don't want to talk about these things they don't want to like hold their friends hands yeah. they don't want to you know like cry because it's so painful to like understand like what we participated in but like that's the second part of the process and like hardly anyone wants to engage with that and then the hardest part I would say the part that I'm just starting to grapple with and like I'm doing this work all the time and I still feel like I'm at point three uh which goes to show like the um, just the magnitude of work that has to go into this and the, imagine, the magnitude of thought and consideration um but the third stage is dreaming mm. and uh this is all about that radical imagination that you know angela davis Audre lord tony morrison all these people talk about right um that we're not very good at because we live in a capitalist society that demands urgency so of course we have no time to like really sit and think and strategize um with people but working towards the same mission. Um, and this is about kind of decolonizing your mind and bringing in new ideas instead of using the same ideas that have been introduced by colonial manufacturers, right? Mm. So when we're doing these actions, action plans, like rushing to action, if you've not done that dreaming and thought about how to do this in a way that isn't white supremacist, like you you're just repeating, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you want white supremacy your way out of white supremacy, and that just creates more white supremacy, but harder to engage, like harder to dismantle, because it's like you know, more often than not, I see people being like, right, we've got to change all of our language, and I'm like, well, so you're just going to trick people into thinking that your organisation is safe by adopting the language of anti-racism without doing anything to kind of tackle the structures, like, you know. So we've got the dreaming. I feel like I've just started dreaming, and. And I, had, I was having a conversation with my mum yesterday and she was just like, well, you're focusing too much on dreaming. Like how, you know, what about acting? And I'm just like, but how do you act without dreaming? You know, and how, and how do you dream if you have no idea how to? <laughs> like, no, I want to come back to. to that. I want to know number four. And then I want to come back to dreaming a little bit. And how do you dream? Understanding that all of our life experiences have been within this, these boxes. How do we think outside of them? But that's a it's a great question and one I'm excited to answer the answer is I don't know but we'll, I'll elaborate. <laughs> we'll talk about uh, it <laughs> so and before then we go there number four nice. yeah so number four is commitment right and that is establishing the intention to manifest your anti-racist vision right um so I think lots of organizations around 2020 when they were doing their I'm 
I'm doing quotation marks for everybody here. Like this is very sarcastic, reflective statements. <laughs> they were jumping to commitment, right? Without doing any of the work that actually needs to be done. It's all very insulting. If you know this process, you're just like, wow, like who are you trying to get? Um, and then you ask. And then action. And then you, set, then you select the yeah. steps that you want to take, but you have to do a heap of work before that, right? And mm. so, so, yeah, I, and I, I think, of course, and it's not even white people, you know, it's people who have been raised by white supremacy and who have not questioned it, right? Because there are plenty of people of colour who, you know, embody the same imperial logic that our Prime Minister Boris Johnson does. And there are plenty of white people who have decided to be a traitor to whiteness and have, you know, are collaborating with anti-racists and saying actually like that we don't need to live this way. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Awesome. Hanging on. <laughs> Before we go into the imagining, deep diving into the imagine or dreaming stage, I do want to ask you, like the way you describe it, it's very linear, but I can't imagine the process is quite that linear. I almost picture waves, like where you kind of mm. go through and as you get to a point where you are imagining or committing and taking action, new learning comes up, right? Like that's change we, we think of as like, okay, if I just take these steps, I'll get there. But I imagine as we get further into the process, we uncover more learning. We go back to the mm. certain areas. Yeah. So I'd love for you to just talk about that process for a second. That's so true. I mean, it's definitely kind of a loop. And I think about, you know, people are like, but well, we have to do something now. And even if I kind of think about my own process of like rediscovering and discovery, where I was like, oh my gosh, like I am a white supremacist. Like basically, I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I, I am internally racist, you know, like as much as I can like say the language, like actually like what's going on in my heart is, isn't right. I was super upset about it. I went into mourning, right? And then I went into dreaming and I was like, oh, I can't dream. Like I don't know enough, right? So then I committed to learning, right? Mm. And then I started buying my books. And then that took me back to the start where I'm like, oh my gosh, the way that we measure impacts is like really, really, really terrible. So then I'm like mourning that. And then dreaming of the foot cement impact and then committing to having conversations and like, you know, speaking with funders. And then I act. And I do think you kind of go in circles and yes, it's not linear. It's too, it, that's too simple. Like you're right. Um, but it is like a constant process that you have to always be engaging with and know that it's never done because I'm not going to be alive for 400 years. Racism like predates me like 450 years, you know? <laughs> so, so there is no way that I am going to ever be free. I don't think of, what white supremacy does to me internally um because this these levers these pulleys they were set up long before i was even imagined you know yeah. so yeah i do think you kind of have yeah have to treat it like a, like like a circle but i think abolition and like black feminist theory they talk about learning reflecting and acting and like just doing that in a constant constant like cycle um and I think often we think okay we've done our act we've created our package we've created our anti-racism strategy we've created our whatever statement so therefore we've done it and it's like well racism changes mm. racism will shift like you have to be constantly vigilant you have to be always learning you know and the best way to learn is to learn from the past yeah. we've done this before we've been here before um, you know, and I think we look to the future a lot without taking any advice from our ancestors, you know, mm. and taking any advice from the past. 
um, because it's really hard to engage with because then you would have to mourn. Um, and in, you know, white, you know, white culture of workplaces, emotions are not allowed. Um, and engaging with the spiritual side of things is not allowed. Um, you know, you engage with the, the outcomes, the impact, so you engage with your quantitative data rather than, yeah, engaging with like your soul. I know it sounds very cheesy, but it is, you know. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a, a lovely way to come back to the this topic of dreaming because again, like we we are raised with these confines of what things are supposed to be like. Uh, and our experience of the world is defined by white supremacy, it's defined by colonialism, is defined by capitalism. How do we dream? And I feel like you kind of hinted at one, one way, which is looking back. Um, and But how, how do we conceive of things outside of these boxes? Um, I know I struggle with that. Like, what could things look like? I have no idea. So I'm not asking you to answer the like, thing but how do you how do you work through that process of dreaming um and if you have any examples even yeah I mean to dream you need time right mm. and like for me like really understanding like understanding the nature of white supremacy and like what it demands of you that perfectionism a sense of urgency either or thinking you know and like really like grappling with that seeing how that plays out in how you interact with other people. Like, I am so impatient. I'm like, now, 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 do the answers now. Give me the thing right now. And actually I'm like, that is, you know, that sense of urgency is like totally a distraction from being able to do the expansive thinking and the collaborative work that is really needed to kind of dismantle the system. Because white supremacists, they've been collaborating for time. They've been planning this for a long, long, long time. You know, <laughs> so actually like, we need, we need to be thinking more expansively and giving ourselves more time. And that's really difficult because, you know, I think about, you know, the best thing I've ever done for myself is set up as a business because I'm in control of like, you know, the amount of time that, that, that I'm able to, to use to think. Uh, we have the money. We're not reliant on funders being like, no, you must prove outcome. Like you have to yeah. prove outcome. Like you have to do this thing. And, and like, God forbid, asking a funder to, to, to fund you to dream. Like, that's like, you know, like not and, even, especially in the UK, that's not a thing. <laughs> no, definitely not here either. But one of the, one of the things you said, and I, I'd love for you to talk about this as well, is like having that time and space, how do you sit with that? Cause I agree, it's so important, but how do you sit with that and the urgency of like literally people's lives and well-beings are at stake? And I know that's a tough question question but I think a lot of people were looking at you know the need to for action because that is built into how we've been trained but also we know the stakes are so high and you're right that we can't actually do this dreaming we can't do the work effectively without recreating the problems that are already there or deepening them without that space, without going through this process. So mm. how, how, what, what goes on in your head as, as we might think about these things or any advice as we try to balance those two things? Yeah. I mean, I think people mistake dreaming with enjoyment, with <laughs> comfort, 
like it's a horribly disgustingly grueling process it gets painful yeah. um more often than not especially like it's so frustrating when I just you know go in circles and come back to white supremacy you know um I think a lot about you know so much of the work that we're doing is putting plasters on a literal volcano avalanche you know there's a tornado coming and we're out here handing out like little like hand sanitizer basically yeah um so actually it's thinking like the way that the urgency is short-sighted yes uh, I think Tony Morrison said like the very function of racism is distraction right and it would keep you from kind of you know keep you having to explain yourself keep you having to like really like you know do short-term fixes but ultimately like these problems are structural they're so much bigger than that like they are so strong and interwoven so we need to be strong right we need to be collaborative and like that can only happen with like really taking the time to build trust to build you know collaboration and uh, coalition um and 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 that that work is really really hard I think there is space for us to work together and provide both immediate support and have that space for dreaming, right? But I think to myself, you know, racism has always existed for my entire life. So what, if I took a month to dream? Like what, me not doing this thing, that's gonna make an impact? Like how uh, arrogant it is to think that like a small group of people, like, or like just myself is so needed that the entire world will fall apart if I didn't take the time to like really think things through, like it's, you know, that individualism that is very much part of white supremacy. Yeah, that's what we're taught. It always (laughs) comes back, right, to it. So I'm trying to think about how to not be Mm. short-sighted in the things that I'm doing, you know. Racism has been in the making for 400 years. Our strategy to dismantle it needs to be 400 years long, right? And we have organizations, people thinking, I'm going to do an eight-week anti-racism course or like I'm going to do... I'm going to write a three-year anti-racism strategy as though they've not been participating in white supremacy for hundreds of years. Um, and because we don't understand how deep it goes, like every single structure that has been built has been built during the process of kind of, you know, colonialism, imperialism has been built with white supremacy in mind. Um, so we have to have like a, you know, a, a huge plan. And I don't have a huge plan. I'm just saying this, like, I don't know what the answer is. I'm just getting to the point where I'm really trying to connect with people doing similar work to talk about how we dream. You know, I've got a group of people together working in philanthropy and we spent the entire time frustrated in our meeting. Like, how do you dream? How do you dream? <laughs> and we were all like, oh my gosh, we have no idea. So instead we were like, why don't we just talk? You know, why don't we just get to know each other yeah. and understand who we are and, you know, start from there. And it's like, you know, again, with that process of decolonization, we rush to action in dreaming. Yeah. Before we've done the necessary, like, <laughs> discovery, re- recovery, mourning, the fact that we don't know how to dream. Um, so, yeah, I, n- I never have a simple answer. And I think kind of that, that's the point, that's right? Point. We try and like, fit things into these like really kind of neat simple categories because we feel anxious when things aren't simple um because there is chaos and we want to control everything right and that control is white supremacy we're back there again yeah <laughs> so, so yeah so, so there are no simple answers and i'm just I'm, like, I'm planning on going back to university so that i have space to dream and think you know and like really like engage with scholarship um and that is me saying I'm going to commit three years of my life 
like to really yeah. things. But at the same time, the acad- academia is one of the whitest institutions. And like really having to like be able to hold all of that stuff at once is super bloody hard. But I'm telling you, it is nowhere near as hard as holding onto whiteness. Yes. Right? Because that will that's like a sacrifice, a sacrifice in your soul. You have to dehumanize. You have to be perfect. Like the thing I find with white people who find it really hard to engage in this work is that they're absolutely terrified of parting with their whiteness and they don't even know what it is. They don't even know what their whiteness is. But somehow like it's it's there happening to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's complicated stuff. And there are no easy answers. Like if there were easy answers, wouldn't we have solved racism? you know yeah I want to I want to wrap up um leaning into one one thing you said um about coming together with other people and doing the work together because I and and the process of kind of going back and slowing down even in that because this as we talked about those circles and or waves or whatever metaphor you want to use for the process I imagine that like we do things individually, we can't hop in to a community setting at any point in the stage. We almost have to go back to the beginning and do it together as well. Um, so do you want to just share some insight on that um, on that process or, or maybe some some things that came up in, in those meetings um, as we as we wind down the conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think collaboration. I know that I'm about to have a bunch of people speak really loudly next to me. Um, I think, I think, I think collaboration is a really difficult one because it sounds easy. Um, it seems easy, um, and it is, you know, fraught with politics. And like, often things go really wrong when we try and collaborate. And I think a lot about what does it take to be ready to collaborate. And that is owning Mm. your own shit, right? Knowing your own shit. (laughs) Knowing like what you're bringing into this, what you're bringing into the space that is oppressive, like knowing your own positionality in relationship to white supremacy. And what I see happen more often than not is organizations like, oh my gosh, we're racist. We discovered this now. Uh, So we're going to collaborate with a small community group. And then we're going to extract, exploit. (laughs) You know, I've seen the wildest things happen recently where people have said, okay, we're racist, we need to collaborate. Okay, what we'll do is we'll poach the best people from this grassroots organization and steal their ideas. And I'm just like, did you learn anything from the <laughs> together? So, so collaboration is hard, um, especially because, you know, if, you're, if, we're, if we're really going to change things, we have to be able to collaborate along lines of shared interests, but also lines of difference, right? Mm. Um, and I see, you know, the most marginalized who are very, very, very suspicious of collaborating with people who have more structural um, advantage. Like I take myself, you know, I'm a queer woman of color, but I'm middle class. Like that gives me a totally different perspective and also like stops me from being able to see things that are really quite obvious, right? And I have had to do a lot and a lot and a lot of work and also just like learn how to be quiet. Like, because (laughs) there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Um, So, I think, yeah, I, I think collaboration sounds easy, but it's really, really difficult. And we need to be, we really need to understand ourselves in order to do that. And it goes back to the process again, that learning, unlearning and mourning, right? Um, what I'm finding with, I mean, I collaborate mainly with other women of colour um, who are working around philanthropy. Um, and again, like that's, it, it's really difficult because you're kind of thinking like actually, is everybody represented 
can we work together on this? How do you know what is what your best place to do in the movement for change? Everyone wants to lead. Everyone thinks that they're the action person, but like, I'm not an action, like I'm really good at talking. I'm so good at talking. I'm really good at convening people. And it's about knowing that about myself mm. and understanding the strengths of the people that I'm trying to collaborate with, um, which means that, you know, going in as equals and going in as everybody who can contribute something um and when you haven't really kind of examined the capitalism within and like the way you've been taught to order and create hierarchies like that can be really you know really really difficult and actually step movements back <laughs> not when they try and collaborate so that's something that I'm thinking about in my dreaming about how yeah. do we collaborate better you know um systemic collaboration is going to be the antidote I think to systemic um you know exploitation um I think really starting yeah starting slowly and realizing that like sometimes we're trying to force things that are already there we're trying to quantify things that you know don't need to be quantified right mm -hmm. if I'm having conversations with um you know my the group of people I'm working with and we're like okay that funder is really problematic for this reason like and we think oh we haven't achieved anything in that time but actually we've all become aware of this like very important political reality um that you know keeps us safe or you know we've had a discussion about how to you know limit your twitter usage or whatever that keeps us safe and helps us be able to organize better and so much of it is thinking about what is it why do we value the things that we value and can we start valuing other things in partnerships you know you think about growth and like outcomes and having packaged something achieved something um but actually it was achievement enough to get six amazing people of color into a space who had not really spoken to each other before to be like oh you're doing this piece of work I know somebody who's really interested in that and has a bit of money to spare you know um but there's so much of that it's like the learning and unlearning like you have to I feel like I have had to walk away from my entire knowledge system my entire knowledge framework what I thought to be important I've just had to be like, okay, I've got to dash that in the bin because actually maybe that wasn't right. Um, and yeah, having those constant conversations with yourself. Um, yeah. It's hard, but I, I'm a better person for it. I'm a happier person for it. I have integrity. Um, and yeah, so yeah, there are never easy answers. And particularly when it comes to collaboration. Um, mm. And I think we think, we think this is going to feel nice. I think liberation is going to be woo, but it's like we are fighting power, and power will not go without a fight. And power will do everything it can to seduce us into joining it, right? And humanizing mm. ourselves. Um, and yeah, you got to be hella strong <laughs> to, yeah. to fight that, right? And to see it for what it is, and to see yourself for what you are as well, um, mm. which is the hardest part, I think. Yeah. Martha, thank you so much. I really could keep talking forever. And there's so many things that you just said in that last sentence. Like, oh my goodness, let's talk about that. But we can't. Um, so first of all, where can our listeners um, learn more about you, connect with you? And of course, you have the hashtag BAME online uh, conference coming up. So where can they learn about that? Yeah, so you can come to BAME Online Conference. It's super awesome. It's pay what you can. So if you don't have a training budget, you can still go because there are loads of very wealthy white people who are willing to pay for your place. Uh, 
<laughs> um, you can follow me on Twitter at Martha Awajobi. Um, check out our YouTube channel, Bame Online, where we host conversations with academics, with funders, with people doing racial justice work to really kind of get to the heart of the ideologies in the sector and like really understand where we are now as a continuation of an imperial project that started a long, long, long time ago. Um, check out my consulting firm's website, JMB Consulting. If you're interested in anti-racism training or events, we do it wherever, whenever, for whoever. Um, yeah, that's it, really. Amazing. Thank you again for, for joining me on the podcast and having these great conversations. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And sorry about everybody else from WeWork being part of this too. <laughs> WeWork. I mean, that alone is a whole other conversation. Oh my gosh, I know. People are like, are you talking about imperialism from WeWork? And I'm like, hey, two things can be true at once, okay? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. WeWork, don't sue us. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. And of course, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And uh, actually, this is the last episode of the season, but we have something special coming up for the summer for you. So stay tuned and uh, we'll see you soon. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.